Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with David Gessner. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, one of my favorite places on earth, and I've been biking every day and saw a black bear with my wife the other day on the trail, and that was pretty cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Oh, you're making me want to get on my bike and ride out there. <laughs> And see the bears and everything, because uh, we're just coming off of uh, a few days here in New York City of the skies being not quite red, but we had the wildfires, and um, and made me think a lot about your book. Well, it's uh, interesting because one of the things I say in the book is I go back to Paradise, California, and I say, uh, the first sentence of that chapter is, "I want to see where the smoke is coming from." And I imagine you guys feel the same way, though you don't want to be right up there in it. Um, and it's an experience Westerners have had now for a long time, you know, days of blurry, clouded particles in the air, and, uh, and the East is getting its taste of the future. Yeah, sometimes I say, like someone will say, oh, it's a really hot day in, like we hit 60 every now and then in January and February. And I say, yeah, it feels warm now, but it's actually cool compared to later. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's actually, I've serialized parts of the book in Orion, and the very first piece was called The Future of the Air. And, you know, right now, 7,000 people a year. Um, I'm sorry, is that 7,000 or 7 million people a year uh, die of air pollution? And you have projections for, for um, kind of, one of, one of the scientists I went to and asked what the world would be like in 40 years kind of said you'd have these crazy red sunsets like after um, after Mount uh, Pinatubo blew in 1991 and particles filled the air and you get this, you know, you get the, the blur, but you also get the crazy colors. So you're in like an abstract painting, basically. I didn't mean to dive right into doom. jump into that dive into doom right away by the way we can say hello first before we go to the end of the world yeah i thought what we do is uh i want to talk about the book and uh the contents of the book and how you chose to do it and before we recorded we talked about a few things now i have to i want to introduce you and have you share your background and i have to say that i've before when i came across traveler's guide to the end of the world i then also found uh, your book on Ultimate, and longtime readers and listeners of my stuff know that I played Ultimate Frisbee for something like 15, maybe 20 years and played Reach Nationals. And, and you're, it's going to be impossible for both of us not to talk about it because we both <laughs> loved it so much. And your book so captured the sport and the community and the ethos that, uh, and I, um, and there's all these names in it that I know of people that I played with and played against. And we might have played against each other too, because I, I was on New York. Oh, we're doing it. <laughs> uh, so I highly recommend anyone who wants to understand uh, regular listeners of my stuff, please like read that book and, and see what that part of my life was and why it's so important to me. Um, but maybe you could share however much of that background you want to share, but also going back to, I mean, how'd you get into writing about this stuff and why do you care so much? And, um, I mean, you're you're you've written a lot of books in this area. Yeah, um, to bring pop culture into it, and I know you're not a TV watcher. In a recent Ted Lasso episode, he was staring at a Van Gogh painting while the um, the guide in the museum was talking about Van Gogh passionately throwing in into you know his his whole self into art and continuing to fail, but continuing to throw oneself in. And I think metaphorically. That's what Ultimate gave me. First of all, we never won nationals, which was our coveted goal. But also, as you know, and as I say in the book, you know, you can have spent your whole life, your whole world training for this thing. And people are still going to say, is that the thing you do with dogs? Yeah. So there was a real lesson <laughs> as an artist in playing Ultimate, in really committing fully to something that few others care about. And I found as a writer over the course of now 13 books, that it's really led me, almost despite my own ambitions and despite myself, to value the process and the doing over the end, uh, which sounds kind of cliche and new agey, I guess, but it's really happened over the decades where I, I love writing. I mean, you hear people go, oh, I hate writing, and I love getting up early in the morning, 
doing my back stretches and getting my coffee and, and diving into something I'm completely absorbed in for three hours, right? And and that process is no offense, more fun than this talking about writing uh-huh. and trying to sell a book. So I started in, you know, got out of college, hadn't really written anything other than editorials in my college newspaper and wrote some bad novels early on while I was working as a carpenter in Boston and playing ultimate. And I would say in those novels, the characters quoted Thoreau to each other. They were so clunky, you know, and, uh, and those novels, I didn't show it to anybody because I was a perfectionist and ultimately sent those novels in. Uh, probably they were read in the slush pile and they got rejected and didn't even show my girlfriend, who was another, was an ultimate player, actually. Um, and then finally, I went back to school where I am today in Boulder, Colorado, when I was 30 and had a society and group of peers who were writers and gradually started sending my stuff out. And as stressful as those twenties, those years of my twenties were working on writing, they really solidified some habits of getting up and working and keeping my butt in the chair every day. So when I did start publishing in my mid thirties, I've, I've continued at a pretty big clip and the natural world and being out in nature and being here in these mountains had always meant so much to me that those, um, I, I didn't like being called a nature writer. It sounded kind of defeat and ineffectual, but I did have a lot of nature in my books. So they've been mostly nonfiction, autobiography, nature, adventures, basically. And uh, and that's, in a way, what this book is, too. No, I can't help comment on the lessons you learned from the sport that I think actually, isn't it played by more people than almost any other sport? I think it's like, like the number of players is very high, even though it doesn't show up on TV. Well, one funny thing that's happened with it, because, you know, I always say it was a sport with a little bit of a chip on its shoulder and a little bit of an inferiority complex because, you know, people wouldn't recognize it. So when I went on the book tour in 2017 for Ultimate Glory, I had, I Ubered around a lot of different cities. And of course, the Uber drivers would say, what are you, what are you, what's your book about? What are you doing? And I'd explain it to them. And then they'd say, well, we have a course right here. You know, there's a course with holes. And they were ca- talking about disc golf, which has leapfrog past us <laughs> in recognition and national popularity. So a lot of people play. Um, a lot of people still don't know what the hell it is. Something that resonates in my mind to this day, freshman year in college, this would be fall. I think we were playing – it was just some fall tournament in, in the Northeast. And anyway, this, uh, the, someone passes the disc to me and it's way out of reach. So I don't – I just watch it go by. And it was – I mean, it was well out of reach. And as I'm coming – at the end of the point, I'm coming to the sideline and one of my teammates, Juno, says – why did you, what was it with that pass? Why didn't you try for it? And I said, well, it's well out of reach. And he goes, at least try. Yeah. <laughs> and years later, this is Celtics poster, a poster of Larry Bird saying it just sickens me when I see someone just watching the ball go out of bounds. Yeah. And, but I love when there's, I don't know, someone hits a big home run and it's way over the fence and the guy still jumps. Right. The outfielder still tries to get it, you know, at least try. And that resonates with me so much these days. At least try. Yeah. And metaphorically, it, it, it really speaks to art too, um, because more and more, uh, and this kind of edges our way into climate, more and more people feel powerless, not just in terms of larger issues like climate change, but artistically, they feel like the big, you know, the big machine is crushing the individual voice. Um, that's one of the reasons, you know, I've published with, Simon and Schuster and Norton. But one of the reasons um, I'm publishing that with Tory House is my books have been about the West and they're Western. They're like the equivalent of a microbrew in, in Utah. And, um, and I really like what they've allowed me to do, which is try, as you describe, and try in my individual way rather than being kind of paved over by how you're supposed to do things. You write, you teach. I mean, you 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 had a 
would it be called a literary magazine or an environmental? I'm, I'm the editor in chief, but basically I founded it and I don't have much to do with it now. Uh, a great editor, Annalena Phillips Bell is the editor now. I kind of, they break me out for parades and I, I wave <laughs> the old distinguished emeritus guy. There's a strategy. I mean, it feels like you're doing a lot and, um, I want to get a picture of the of the full picture view, and then before getting to the book, because you could write about a lot of different things. I mean, you have an audience, and you choose to write in this area. Are you looking to illustrate? Are you looking to um, express to to influence all these things? I'm really just following my passions. Um, I'd like to do more of what you're describing and the, what we talked about before we got on, which was how to be a leader in this area, but really. I, I write as I read by inclination, by, by what's fascinating to me at the moment. Um, I had a book long ago. I was being called a nature writer by critics. And it irked me. So I wrote a book called Sick of Nature, which started, you know, I am sick of trees. I'm sick of bugs. I'm sick of rivers. Um, of course, I wasn't really sick of those things. And that comes out in the book. But what I was really sick of is the constraints of genre and the way you're expected to write. Um, but I've joked since every book sh should be called sick of the last book because, you know, you spend three years like writing about ultimate Frisbee. The next thing I turn around and write about, um, you know, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. And so there's an old English expression that Churchill used called uh, a change is as good as a rest. And I feel like I kind of renew my battery um, by um, working on different things. Though the, the natural world and fighting for it have, have remained a thread through my work, I also think humor has been a thread through the work. And, and, and at times I want to just write without the obligation of it being deep and, and important. Just have fun, basically. Yeah, you also quote a lot of poetry. I mean, you quote, usually if there's poetry quoted, it's like Wendell Berry, not T.S. Eliot. And yeah. so I feel like you bring in something something timeless, I guess, uh, eternal, human, that shows up in a lot of other places and also here. And it's not like – I mean, we are in a unique time, it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet some of the stuff is eternal. Do I read that right? Yeah. I mean, that's I'm flattered that you said that. Um, I would say that one thing I tried to do with The Traveler's Guide to the End of the World was write about climate, not as if I'm writing a brochure, not as if I have bullet points at the end, and not as a screed kind of, you know, uh, Old Testament prophet, uh, warnings of doom, but as an artist would, just trying to describe what I saw as I traveled around the country, people I talked to, maybe in a restaurant, maybe in a bar, and try to give it an aspect of, you know, what what literature does in other areas. We don't have to suddenly turn into like Johnny OneNote because we're writing about climate. As, as important and as pressing as climate is, um, I think it can be addressed in a lot of ways and a lot of voices. So, yeah, let's get into Traveler's Guide to the End of the World. It's uh, how much of it was... I mean, all the traveling that you did in it, was it for the book or was it uh, – it seems like some of it was for the book and some of it was for – I mean, coming up to New York City with your daughter is partly because she's going to college. But um, – and it seems like like the friendship with Orrin – how far back did that go? Like, Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> There's so many different things that no. I, I feel like uh, – I think I can answer that, you know, um, uh -huh. the through line. So – I have lately been writing on the heels of experience, like writing and publishing fairly quickly. Um, I had a book during the pandemic early on. I wrote about, uh, wrote an essay about sheltering with Thoreau because suddenly, you know, like everyone else, I was spending a lot of time at home. I was lucky enough to have my home ha a job be, be on the creek. Hewlett's Creek, which is also Dawson's Creek. It's where it was filmed. So I could kayak out from there and to the greater world. But I wrote that book as it was happening. And I got to the end and I said, 
I'm going to publish it fast as well. And that's why I went to Tory House Press. Um, so it'll be like kind of the first thoughtful book about the pandemic. It's called Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight. Um, so I got to the end of that. And it was a year later after we first started sheltering. And I was invited up to do a TV interview in D.C. And I went up there. And I couldn't believe what I found, you know, this barricaded place with razor wire on top of fences and people with guns. And I oddly, I was, uh, well, not oddly, but interestingly, I had, Jamie Raskin was my uh, college classmate and I interviewed him and I just felt like, oh my God, this is got a semi-apocalyptic feel. And so then when I went out West, which I always do once school ends, I encountered, like New York's encountering right now, fires everywhere, smoke everywhere. And so I went to visit an old hero of mine, Ken Slight, who's seldom seen, seldom seen Smith in the Monkey Wrench Gang, Edward Abbey's novel. He was 91 years old and fires had just burnt down his um, Quonset hut where he kept all his papers. And I went uh, to his wife's birthday party on Pack Creek Ranch where the fire had just happened. And all of a sudden, a flash flood came rumbling like a freight train down the, down the canyon. So I was like, boy, I'm not even trying here. And I'm getting climate pushed in my face. And of course, I live on coastal, in coastal North Carolina where we're always getting hit. But, you know, we're, 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 you know, if you had to do a Final Four tournament of most climate-affected places in the U.S., you know, probably in the finals, the Southwest, the desert Southwest would be playing, uh, you know, the Hurricane Coast. So I was getting these things happening to me. And then, of course, as it evolved, I more consciously started going to places. Like I went to Paradise, California, and interviewed people there. and. You know, as you said, I went up to New York mostly to visit my daughter, but it gave me a kind of segue into talking about much earlier visits to New York with Orrin Pilkey, the coastal geologist. So in a way, the book was forced upon me, and then I just kind of took it and did more trips. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't very hard to find a climate disaster. For instance, a former student of ours, um, Adam Gadusi, who uh, published a, a novel after he graduated, he was having his wedding in New Orleans, and we went down there, and they were just digging out from Hurricane Ida. And just to, you know, my thing is when people say to me, oh, the world hasn't changed, not much has changed, I point to my daughter Hadley's four years in high school, first term, spring, you know, fall, freshman year, her place is a, a hospital, her high school is a hospital because Hurricane Florence has um, come through. Spring term, she gets an actual regular high school term. Another hurricane comes the next fall, and then COVID shuts her down for the rest of the way. So for somebody like that, you know, you feel that we're in a new world already, that climate change is here. Sorry, Josh, that was a little bit long-winded, but I got into it. Sorry. <laughs> Not at all. I mean... Traveler's Guide. It, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's. Uh, I mean, you start the book off with this picture of um, the map on on with the, the the sticky notes of the different places you've been, which is not the usual start of a book on climate. And so, but and you start. I mean, even the title, Traveler's Guide, and you're talking about America. I mean, yeah, you're talking about America, but you also point out that what's happening in America is is not just America. Actually, I guess it's. I would think it's mild here compared to many places. Yeah. Uh, I guess in some places it's more serious. Yeah. But it's what I know, you know, and I, and I, I acknowledge that considering that we spewed 25% of the carbon into the air and we, we've done most of the damage. And as you know, now, you know, this week in New York, uh, there are no borders to air and wind. So our, our spew goes around the globe, uh, but this was right after COVID and I was traveling within our country. And I, so with apologies to the fact that the world is getting harder hit than we are, there's still plenty to see here. You know, I think that the, the Northeast, with the exception of uh, maybe last week in Sandy, um, maybe doesn't feel it as acutely. But where I live, 
right now, this time of year, hurricane season is here, and we all start to feel apprehensive. And out here where I am right now in Colorado, we sure uh, get nervous about fire season. So um, so it's here too. And it, it, to make people think about it more, it, it's much more urgent if it's in your backyard, right? Than if it, you, know, you can say to somebody, well, the Himalayas are melting or um, but but this to me was a way to say, wake up, it's here. It's not coming. Oh, it's coming too. Yeah, it's, it's nothing compared to what's going to come. Because you, besides the places, there's, I think Orin is like the main person also because the next book that I'm reading now is on, um, uh, they're talking about building like some beach uh, and they're talking about building walls. I'm like, oh man, I know from your book that the walls are just going to accelerate it. And he's talking about seven feet by, um, I think by 2100, or was it by earlier yeah. than that? Yeah. I mean, his, his prediction is on the high side, but even if you just go by the IPCC predictions, um, places like Miami or where I live, when you fly into Wilmington, North Carolina, you just look down and you see how permeated by water it is and how close to the ocean and the river and and when I traveled to Miami, you know, I was eating at a restaurant that was three feet over sea level, and it was already flooding during spring tides and moon tides. So, like the, the heat, our Miami Heat are in the finals, right? And when they show those beautiful pictures of Miami, you're seeing these high rises right on the water, and it's just a roulette wheel, you know, crapshoot, uh, roll of the dice that they haven't been hit. And, recently. And when that happens, that's going to be um, just almost unimaginable. Now, someone listening to you talking now might think, oh, this is a book about doom. And I think your your goal, it's not, how do I put it? You're just showing this is where things are now. You're, you're not trying to um, warn people. You're not trying to, uh, what's the word, a spect- make a spectacle of it. Mm-hmm. You're just saying this is what's happening right here, right now. Yeah, well, let me just do a kind of contrast. Um, I'm a huge fan of Bill McKibbins. Uh, he was my editor in college. I was a political cartoonist and he was the editor in chief. And he's been really supportive of my career and I'm full of admiration. And when he writes and warns us, it's very important. I'm trying to do something a little different here, which is I'm just trying to kind of, I, I call it almost messy sloppy. I'm just trying to show what I'm seeing. I'm trying to go to places and talk to the people there. And, you know, like people in paradise who've had their houses burned and now there's a new fire coming, but getting their individual stories. Now, not not that Bill doesn't do that. I don't want to in any way say anything negative about his work, which I really hugely admire. Um, But I'm just trying to come to it and, you know, as I say in the beginning, when I introduce myself as your tour guide, I say, you know, we might even have a little fun because the places I'm going to tend to be pretty spectacular places, too. I mean, New Orleans might be sinking, but the, you know, going down into the Gulf and, in, you know, in the, um, and the Bay is just spectacular. This, you know, bird life and, uh, fecundity everywhere. And, you know, I go to the, into the Rockies. I hike to the source of the Colorado River, which gives 40 million people their, their drinking water. And even though there's lots of warning in there about that, there's also the sheer beauty and the primal source. And I mean, how amazing is that? That this little, it starts as this river I can straddle. I can step on both sides of flowing below the ice, then goes on to be the kind of the lifeblood of the West. So there's there's some nature and wonder, but there's also, I hope, some good jokes in there, too. And hmm. so it's just an attempt to kind of take climate literature to a new place. And I don't know if it succeeds or not, but I, you know, that's what I was trying to do in this particular book. And, and I do warn, in a way, because I ask scientists what the world will be like when my daughter's my age. And when they, when they reply, it tends to be a little on the scary side. Um, as you can imagine. Yeah, it, it must have been, was it difficult not to, it feels tempting to get into warning and being like shaking people and being like, well, look what's going on, grab the lapels, which you don't do. 
Uh, I mean, you do quote the scientists. Yeah. And uh, was it hard to do that? Was it – or did you – once you picked your direction, was it easy to stick with it? Because I, I feel it would be hard. Well, I just feel like – like, for here, let's take a, uh, a classic one. People went in and walked into in, an inconvenient truth. They got all, you know, Uncle Al showing us his graphs and his charts, and it was scary as hell. And if they were like me, they came out of there going, I'm going to devote my life to, you know, fighting for, uh, against climate change. And I'm going to, and then the next morning they were off to work and, you know, forgotten about it and moved on down the road. So at this point, um, to some degree, the, the literature of climate has been ineffectual. You know, it's, uh, I see kind of what I call the book reports, uh, which is nonfiction that kind of just gives us facts and statistics. I see the, um, the over-the-top doom warnings, and I don't see a lot of – and I don't see – what I called messiness before. And, and I, so it wasn't hard for me because I knew that that's what I wanted to try to do. So I wanted to try to write about it. And as I said to you, when we, when we talked before, hell, the next book I'm doing is about the Yellowstone to Yukon trail and about half earth and about rewilding. And I can see in my uh, dotage and my old age here that I could, you know, I'm 62 now that I could, um, focus more on advocacy and on um, just trying to shake people awake. But my goal here was something a little different. And I think maybe some people can read it who get turned off from being proselytized to, you know, um, uh, that's my hope at least. I don't know if that really made sense, but it's just like, I kind of had this vision of not, not going to certain places because they've been so retread or because they're ineffective? Yeah, I called it like the tropes of hope and the tropes of doom. And, you know, the worst case is you see a news show where they go, oh, this whole forest has died because of beetle kill and heat. But here's a here's a little, you know, solar light bulb I've got here, you know, oh, on the yeah. news shows. Or, and, and, you know, obviously I use end of the world in my title so I'm not entirely anti-doom, nor am I anti-hope, but I just didn't want to follow tracks that had been trod you know, many times before. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> before we started recording, we, we were lamenting how when we get interviewed, I always get asked two questions. One is, how do you have hope? And the other is, what's something someone can do right now? Right. And... I, I guess I can feel the pull to ask those things, but they've been asked a million times. And to me, to ask someone like, what's what's one thing they can do to, what's one thing we could do today? You get a solution. It's like Nancy Reagan saying, just say no, right. which was a clear loss. Right. And it's it, it feels to me like asking someone who's hooked on heroin, like, or to, someone's hooked on heroin and they ask like, what's one little trick I can do and that'll get me off? And it's like, it's really hard. You got to look at everything. Yeah. And that's exactly, I, I said to you, um, I've been, I enjoy talks like this. And I had a great interview the other day where the person had clearly, you know, read the book. And, but then half of the interviews are me saying, well, it isn't really a book about hope. And it's not a book about policy. And then they'll say, is there hope? What's the policy? You know, it's just <laughs> like, okay. This is in a, he's banging my head against the wall a little bit. So, and, and yet we both admit, having said that, that those things are hugely important. I mean, uh, there's a Samuel Johnson quote, without hope, there is no endeavor. And the simple fact is, like, say you're trying to write a novel and it's not going so well and you get down on yourself and you're, you know, um, but you push through and you get a couple good lines down and then you get a few more. And you get momentum going. Well, that's kind of a form of hope. So hope is a fuel for doing, for activity. And I'm aware of that. And, uh, you know, and have written books that are like, for instance, my book, Return of the Osprey, is about Rachel Carson and DDT at first. But then some guys on Long Island, you know, get pissed off that all their, that spraying mosquitoes is killing the birds and killing the ospreys in particular. And they fight back. 
And they, they're kind of a neighborhood group at first, but they become the Environmental Defense Fund, and their motto is sue the bastards. And what's the result? When I was growing up on Cape Cod, no ospreys anywhere, you know, extinct, but not in, not in that region. And now when I go back there, the sky is full of ospreys. So, you know, that's a concrete action that a group of people took. Um, that is, in fact, hopeful. And, and I do point to a few places in the book, like when I'm down in southern Louisiana with Ryan Lambert, who's this big old you know country boy who hunts and fishes and has a hunting and fishing lodge. But he's also redirecting the Mississippi to rebuild land that's disappearing in the Gulf with a Ducks Unlimited grant, you know, and, and, and his own money. He's doing this heroic individual thing. So I'm not anti-hope, and I do think there are great individual examples. Uh, but to do that, to just focus on that, reduces the discussion and, and makes it overly simple and not complex the way it really is. See how I threw a little hope in there for you? <laughs> <laughs> it, there's uh, Speaking of emotions, if hope is an emotion – I mean, there's another thing you come back to several times in the book about um, you describe it, I think, maybe as hypocrisy of your own. I mean, you fly around a lot in the book uh, and you're keeping track of it. And you say, if you're keeping track, like you're you're conscious of this uh, and you're not hiding it. You're not proud of it as I read it. Well, how did that factor in? Well, a while ago, I did a book called My Green Manifesto. And it's funny because I was about, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. And I, I actually argued that there was an overemphasis on climate only because it started to be overarching where it stamped out some local fights, it seemed to me. And the hero of that book was a man named Dan Driscoll, who helped green the Charles banks of the Charles River. And he did that because he was working you know, for the city and for the state. Uh, he did that by creating bike paths and then kind of Trojan horsing in native plantings. And he said to me, we're all hypocrites. We all fly and drive and do these things, but we need more hypocrites who fight. We need fighting hypocrites. And, you know, not because, you know, there's a tendency once you you know, once you've admitted that to then let yourself off the hook, right? So I am, uh, you know, I come from a family of big eaters and big drinkers and big consumers. So that's been a wrestling match with me through my career. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a Thoreau fanatic, but I know that temperamentally, Henry and I are quite different. You know, he'll have one meal a day and he could probably, no problem, do what you, what you've been doing. I would be, I would have more of a challenge. And that said, I would, I think if it's a fight that we're talking about, or if it's a movement awareness of the natural world and what climate is doing, I think there are many different ways to kind of confront it. The way you're doing it is incredibly admirable. And I'd like to continue talking about it and maybe learn from it. The way I'm trying to do it is through through my art, basically, through my books. And there's a great book called Ministry for the Future. And I'm going to forget the, how can I forget the author's name? Tim. Uh, anyway, Ministry for the Future, which is a cli-fi book. And it describes the next 70 years of, of climate. And it's very depressing in a lot of ways because the worst stuff starts happening. But when we start fighting back, Kim Stanley Robinson. And when we, when we start fighting back, it's on a multitude of fronts. For instance, the politicians pass laws. You know, the writers write, the lawyers sue, the monkey wrenchers monkey wrench. There's a bunch of uh, environmental terrorism that we call it now, but activism, I would call it. And it's really interesting because people all do what they do best. <clears throat> so for me, I have not been able to evolve to the degree I would hope I had in my life. Though my daughter's a vegan and she's uh, led me down that road to some extent. Um, but I don't want to let that stop me from doing what I can do, which is writing books, and 
and illustrating the lives of people around the country being impacted by climate. Well, when you come to New York, I invite you over for my famous no packaging vegan now solar powered stew. Excellent. And yeah, <laughs> actually, have in my leadership work, I try to appeal. And I believe I do, not just to environmentalists. In fact, environmentalists are often the most recalcitrant. But I've had Trump supporters and evangelicals, military generals. And um, I had a Trump guy over here for famous no-packaging vegan stew. And I, I didn't even think of it as I made it for him. And he took a bite. And his first set, the first thing he said was, I don't even notice there's not meat in this. <laughs> and I just last time I ate meat was 1990. I didn't even think about it. Yeah. I mean, the word vegan is in there. Yeah. But uh, – Actually, that's a big thing for me. It's like I think people there's people think something's terrible because our culture says it is. Our culture says that sustainability is deprivation, sacrifice, burden, chore. And if you don't really think twice about it, then you'll believe it and you'll see things that way. And it, it's people have been thriving for hundreds of thousands of years sustainably. It's there. Well, I'm kind of tempted to get into what I was talking about with the New Yorker thing before. And transition into talking about that if you're up for it. But well, I wouldn't mind responding to your um, to what you just said because it's kind of an interesting contrast in terms of our approaches to. In my book before this one, you know, my daughter factors heavily into the new book. Yeah, imagining what the world's going to be like when she's my age, and she lives right down the street from you at NYU, which has its own irony because uh, New York. Uh, New Orleans and Miami are listed as the three most dangerous and hurricane-threatened cities. Now, of course, it's of the three, it's least likely that a hurricane will hit New York, but it's in that list because of the damage it would do if it did. And not just a Sandy-style hurricane, but a you know a, a whopper. But anyway, so my daughter was in my previous book too, and one of the things that she's been a vegan now for four or five years, and she is not a big, or she wasn't a big pleasure reading, reading for her own, you know, outside of school, a person. And this troubled my wife, who's a novelist, and me, writer. And so one January 1st, I made a deal for the year that every day she read for half an hour, I would be a vegan the next day. Um, and that lasted until. Uh, I think May, when I traveled out west to see and report on writer Rick Bass, who lives on the Canadian border in the Yak Valley um, in Montana, um, I was there to write about grizzly bears and his fight to save them. And there was a grizzly bear meeting. and They were all together and there were lawyers there and Rick was in charge. So he just, and I just arrived and he said, can you grill? I said, Sure. He handed me a platter with a giant antelope leg. It turned out he and his daughter had shot it nearby and, and, and pointed me to the Weber grill. And I, you know, I plopped it on the grill and a few minutes later started plucking it off and my days as a vegan were over. <laughs> so that kind of was like, that's the kind of thing I wanted to get across in the in Traveler's Guide too, which is, you know, Samuel Johnson said, for us, there is only, no, I'm sorry. Yes, Elliot said, for us, there is only the trying. And, you know, so I, I'm trying to do what you do, failing and chronicling it, which, you know, is a little different than, than succeeding and doing it. So I, I tip my hat to you. Oh, in that case, instead of going to the New Yorker thing, I'm going to go, I don't know if you've come across the Spodek method. And I, I know you read some of my stuff. So go ahead. The Spodek method is this technique that I do with podcast guests and also in life. And I actually just finished leading my first workshop and we're going to do another workshop in it this or a couple more this summer. And it's one of the main things about leadership is that management tends to be about things you can measure. Uh, it's telling people, you know, if you do this, you'll get a promotion. If you don't do it, you'll get fired. Like carrots and sticks, measurable right. things. Right. Very important. Leadership works on things that are usually intangible, often emotions, but role models and stories and images and beliefs. And the big thing for me, one of the biggest differences, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And to say um, Bangladesh is going to be underwater, 
to someone who's never been to Bangladesh or is not themselves Bangladeshi or doesn't have a particular connection, that's extrinsic. It's it's coercing. Whereas if you tap into what the person is, if you tap into the intrinsic motivation that's already there and connect that to the task, then they're doing it for their own reasons and that's inspiring. So the Spodek method is, is my technique. And if you're game for it, I'll do it with you right here, right now. That'd be great. All right. So uh, it, it's just a... a a short conversation, the first part. So, um, well, the first part, I, I think I know the answer to the first question. Is the environment something important to you? Something enough enough that you would ask, act on it? Yes. When you think of yourself in the environment, in nature, a lot of people have different views of nature because some people grew up in one place in mountains versus ocean or something like that. And so everyone has a different view of like what nature is. And, and many people have many different ones. But if you think of yourself in a quintessential moment in nature – for yourself. Does anything come to mind of a scene around you? Well, I'm a great lover of water in the sense of uh, not just looking at it, but plunging into it. So in my two favorite landscapes, uh, you know, the coast and the mountains, I rarely go very long without uh, getting wet. And so to me, that's a, that's an essential thing is water. I think Joyce said, I love all things that flow. And that's that's a driver for me, is water. Oh, this gives me a chance to ask of you a thing about going in water three times for it to count. And I think we're in <laughs> some mountain. Was that the Colorado where it was really cold? Yeah, but I, I've actually advanced past that. I, I don't want to go into it, but I've gotten a little into the Wim Hof thing and have been really staying in super cold water recently. Just, all right, just we got to put that on the conversation. In Colorado, I just went, there was like a frozen waterfall and went in the water below it for a while. You know, and now I, so I stay in longer these days, but yeah, water. Okay. Yeah. At some point we can, I I take cold showers all the time and it's not for environmental reasons. It's for life. I don't know. Anyway. So, okay. Water flow. Um, You going into the water. Is there any particular situation where maybe that, that started or that, that represents that? An actual experience of yours? Well, you know, my first nature, the place I knew early was Cape Cod. And, uh, you know, later I got to know Cape Cod in the off seasons, but at first it was summer. And I was lucky enough to live within walking distance of Cape Cod Bay. So I think that's where it, that's where it really started. Yeah. Can you take us there? What, if you're there... At some point, maybe you're by yourself, maybe you're with your family. What do you see and smell and taste and touch and hear? Well, it's evolved over time. So the earliest ones are, you know, I'm imagining a summer day, but not too hot. So no one's on the beach and the low tide is reaching out into the bay. And I would always do this walk along the water away from the houses out toward this bluff, uh, which probably is the single, um, largest, most important geographical entity for me. Uh, it's a bluff where bank swallows nest underneath the kind of top crust area and uh, where you get away, you know, you have to walk over rocks. So you're moving away from people. And it's throughout the years, it's been kind of a touchstone environmental place for me, including having a giant house built on top of it. So as I said at the time, I have everything I love and everything I hate within, you know, within one sweeping view of the place. Is it, are the, I mean, I can't help but think about like the salty air. I'm, I'm, I can't help but ask, yeah. her, do you have a view of, of whales breaching and things like that? Yeah. You know, in fact, years later, I moved back there and lived in, in a you know, was house sitting in a house where I did have a view of, of humpback whales uh, uh, reaching, but also gannets diving, uh, you know, just shooting down. And that, that's transforming it into more of a winter, uh, ocean or winter water, which to me ended up being the most exciting thing of all. I, I said at one point it was like living inside a Van Gogh painting. So, you know, so much action. And so the wind and the, the, the bird life, you know, whipping through. And, the, and then to jump around in time, the fall migrations of birds on Cape Cod, where everything's like kind of sweeping over the peninsula. What kind of emotions do you feel when you're there? Well, getting to the bluff was always 
you know, since I first went there as a young person and then as an adolescent, it was a kind of getting away from the anxiety and stress and, and literally the eyes of other people because the houses, you know, look down on the beach. And once the houses are gone, you feel more like yourself again. And you're, so it was more, I, I don't want to say, I guess peace was part of it, but it was more just kind of uh, in my own space, you know, kind of a, a space apart, a refuge. So peace is part of that for sure. Now that you're sounding very throwy. Well, one thing I was going to say about that was that as much as physical places influenced me as a, you know, as a teenager, basically literature and reading, which I think is really un when people talk about these things and they say, well, you know, I, I like the, the primal, I like this and that many times they've often read things that bolster and enhance those, those feelings too. So for me, it became like a kind of combination, my love of places, of the places themselves and physically being there, but also the things I read about the place and the, and the beautiful language as well as the beautiful places. So based on the emotions and feelings that you get there, getting away, not having the eyes on you, uh, the peace, uh, you said you love the places. So... I hear love. I invite you, if you want to go for it, to think of something you can do in your regular life here and now, or maybe not in this moment, but something that I could bring back on a second time to share how it went. Something you could do to act on, to create those feelings, you know, obviously not recreate exactly Cape Cod, but something like those feelings where you are uh, with three constraints if you're up for it. It's something, the first is something that you're not already doing. Right. The second is something that you do, it has to be with your own hands. So usually not involving other people. I mean, it can involve other people. It can't depend on them. It's you're doing it. I, I work with a lot of leaders and they're like, oh, I'll get a team to do X. Right. And um, something with a physical component so that um, not just reading a book or watching a documentary that, so that afterward you can say the world is better than I found it in some way from my having done it. But I want to clarify something I didn't say. Almost everyone hears something I didn't say. I didn't say what's something you can do to help the environment. It's not that at all. Right. That may be a side effect, but it's to manifest what you experienced in this moment or in, the, in this place now and have it, have it be a part of your life, be able to create it somewhere else. Is it manifesting it for other people as well? Or is it just kind of having, you're trying to create that for you? Cause I mean, um, like, obviously, I have a lot of things I do do, like kayaking regularly from my house, but that's not helping others experience that feeling at all, unless I'm writing. Yeah, it's for yourself. Yeah. And if it helps others, great. But if it doesn't, that's fine, too. Yeah. Because the goal is really to um, create experiences, to see that nature is not only elsewhere, or rather what we get from it is not only elsewhere. Well, you're speaking my language, so I'm happy to do that. I, I want to add another emotion, though, which I kind of hinted at when I said the trophy house was being built atop the bluff with the swallows, which is anger. And I'm not, um, I'm not discounting the positive emotions. Um, for instance, after Hurricane Florence, I kayaked out to Masonboro Island, which is at the end of the creek where I live. And the, I, I think I write about this in the book and the, ocean was a stew of like you know pig shit and debris and everything that had been come down the cape fear river with the with the hurricane and i saw two young women about two young girls about my daughter's age paddle boarding and i couldn't resist the desire to the need to be a dad and i paddled over them and said girls please don't um, don't get in the water and in fact couple of weeks later, someone was swimming at Wrightsville Beach and, and died of an infection from the water. So I do think that, you know, for me, the two motivators, and this goes with a lot of my writing, starting, you have to love a place to some degree to fight for it. Um, but play, to see the love, a place you love despoiled, uh, to see it attacked, 
is an also kind of a potent emotion to fight. Uh, so, you know, love and anger can sometimes work hand in hand, for me at least. I do have a lot of people, that their quintessential moment does have, they'll talk about a place where they've been and now there's a giant road going through it. Sure. Or sure. You know, the bugs have eaten it. The, and you know, a classic one of that is, uh, you know, when I do exercises with students, I ask them to kind of dredge, dredge up particulars of place as a starting point for an essay. And so many of them write about the woods by their house that are now condos. Somewhere. Yeah. Actually, I did this exercise with uh, an executive at one of the super major oil companies. And I've known, I'd known him for a while. And he, I kept telling him, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And he kept saying, no, no, no. But then one time he was coming back from his grandmother. Or he was visiting his grandmother's. And there was a forest that he used to play in as a kid. And he'd heard about the following things happening, but had never seen it. And some bug that normally would get frozen out was no longer frozen out. Right. And the forest was just stumps as far as the eye could see. And I didn't ask him if I could do it. I just asked him what were the emotions that you felt then and now. And it activated him. And so now there's this guy at this super major oil company that his coworkers like, why are you so into the environment all of a sudden? Because, well, he did something. Well, let's, um, it was what he did acting on it, which is let's come up with something if you're up for it. Yeah. Does anything come to mind right away? I mean, if you hadn't already been kayaking, kayaking would fit the bill, but you already kayak, but it sounds like something, you know, something that gives you something like that. Well, I'm a birder and I'm right now in, in Chautauqua Park in Colorado. And as I mentioned, I saw a black bear on the trail the other day. So after I get done with this, my daughter, who's now 20, and I are going to hike from here to El Dorado Springs, a little town. So uh, and that will definitely, you know, seeing her respond to a place that I loved definitely gives me those kind of recreates those feelings. So I'll do that. Um, I think I've got too many things I do already that are like your assignment. <laughs> that are, you know, I mean, I, I say in the book, I quote Henry Beston, uh, the, the Cape Cod nature writer from the early 1900s. Where he, when he says, the world today is sick for lack of elemental things, for wind, fire, and water, which is kind of funny because he's talking about it as, you know, being our primal selves. But wind, fire, and water are also in the subtitle of my book, the things that are turning against us. So it's both the thing we embrace and the thing we fear. And there's a great Roth Waldo Emerson quote, which I think I use in Ultimate Glory because I thought this way about Ultimate too, which is first be a good animal. Doesn't say only be a good animal, but first mm -hmm. ground yourself in your in your physical being. And to me, that's always been the reason ultimate and writing went well so well together is you know, one kind of grounded me in kind of my animal self, because writers tend to get too much in their heads. So I'm always trying to kind of break out of just being in my mind. Speaking of just of breaking out of just things, I do have a lot of people on the podcast and in the workshops that I do who are doing a lot of things. What I find with them is that there's usually an area, like they usually do things in certain areas. I had someone, uh, no, I did this at a workshop and she was, she hikes a lot. And so for a while we went back and forth. By, by the way, this process of going back and forth is standard. It's, right. Occasionally someone says, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do something and this is my chance. Great. But in her case, she just kept coming up with like, well, I could hike this place. I could hike that place. So all these places I haven't hiked in a while or haven't hiked at all. But then something – then she realized, oh, this – she went in a whole other direction that she wouldn't have gone in before. And that may work for you. There might be oh. directions that you haven't been moving in. Well – even though it wouldn't entirely fit the bill, and maybe this is part of the back and forth, um, I think it'd be interesting for me to go in some of the directions you've gone in my lifestyle, because that's where I kind of let myself off the hook a lot. Now, I don't know if that would bring me feelings of similar peace, the natural world, but um, maybe I can combine those two in, in a way that it's interesting. You know, I just, I feel like, um, I say in the book, 
My daughter gave climate talks at City Hall in Wilmington, North Carolina. She founded a sunrise group at her high school, you know, the high school version of the Bill McKibben movement. Um, and I say she has an activist team that I lack. So that would be interesting for me going forward. Again, it's not what your assignment was and it's not what you were going for, but I'd like to give myself that assignment going. You know, I wrote this book and laid, laid it out, but I'd like to do more going forward. Well, it's a direction that may, that looks promising. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a big effective thing. It can, in terms of affecting the world or even affecting your life, it just has to be non-zero and, right. but, and, and coming from inside. And it may be that there's something in the overlap. So let's, let's go in this direction a bit. Um, are we, so we're okay with going toward your more type thing? Yeah. I mean, the real thing is at the end, when we come up with something, I'll just go, does it, I'll say, does it match? Does it, does it check the three boxes of the constraints and make sure that it's, it has some connection to the, you know, it has a, has a good chance of it, of it manifesting something of the Cape Cod experience. I think it would have to, you know, let's go back to water. I speaking as, um, you know, and maybe clean water and, um, I'm not sure. I'm groping a little here. That's par for the course. Yeah. Uh, oh, here's a question I often ask people. Is uh, is there a place where, maybe involving water, where you have a lot of the sense of, of getting away, a lot of sense of of peace, or alternatively, where you interact with these things where you have the opposite of that? You feel like the, there's lack of peace, there's lack of love, there's lack of getting away, where you could increase it. So sometimes it's augmenting what's already there, or sometimes it's finding a lack of it and trying to put it in. I guess I would say that the place I have it now is Masonboro Island, where I, I can paddle there from, from my house. And I guess what disturbs me about where I live at the moment is the disregard for trees. Um, speaking of climate and, and trying to, you know, trying to fight for climate, it's a town basically run by developers. And every time you turn around, you see tree massacre. So I don't know if I can, you know, I've written articles about it, essays about it. I don't know if there's anything else I could do concretely that were, was related to that in the, in the town where I live. Is there something you could do actively relating to, well, you said water and you, and you said trees that you could do to appreciate the trees or the water or experience them. I mean, how you were in Cape Cod, like you weren't trying to fix Cape Cod. You weren't trying to do anything there, but you were getting something from it. You're appreciating it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, again, to circle back, I feel like that's my whole kind of, MO as a writer is to try to get out in places and do that. So I guess for me, not to, not to cop out, but I feel like places evoke words. And so whatever I do is probably going to end up um, being in a place, feeling like that, and then trying to recreate it on the page, um, which again is kind of a retreat to my, my regular behavior, I guess. What's something you could do besides writing, if anything? Uh, uh, you know, one thing I could do is I do a lot of public speaking, but I don't do advocacy-based public speaking. It's more, um, you know, literary and entertainment. So that's something I could do. And that would be a challenge into a new area. Because as you can tell from my story about being a vegan and other things, I generally tend to not push for particular things you know, and, and advocate. So that would be a new area for me to do it. And it would circle back to these places that I love because I'd be protecting them. So I could see that as a, as a challenge. So everyone's unique. And so every time I do this, it's, it's something different, which is part of why I love doing this so much. If you write, a, I, I, 
here's something that I'm seeing and tell me if I'm getting it off. When you want to write about something, you go and, ex- and experience the feeling of being there. You experience a, pace of, a sense of place and write that. If you're going to advocate, I would think that it's go to a place and do something. Okay. Because if you're advocating, you're not advocating simply experiencing, I think. I think it would be advocating doing something. But it would be the same essential experience to start with, which would be to be in a place, to observe, to notice, uh, to take note of. It would just be that what you would then use it for would be different. What if you took one more step and... I'm picturing if you visit the place and experience it and then walk away, you would say it's the same as I left it, as I found it. Right. What if you left it better than you found it, if that's possible? I don't want to presuppose that maybe interfering with it, some people might consider that worsening it. I'm not sure. But this is your by your own values. So the equivalent of picking up trash, basically? If that was something that felt like, if that's something that would um, conjure up or evoke the the feelings that you've had in in water or trees or Cape Cod. Yeah, that's the. This is what I'm getting at. It's, it's this active component. Yeah. Well, I might um, I might have to brood if you don't mind, and I, I just I feel like I'm I'm not I'm not moving toward that yet. Since I know that we're going to talk again, I could say. See, what I found is when people say, let me get back to you, what they're really saying is, I really believe I'm going to get back to you, but I'm not going to because <laughs> I'm the same way because once the call ends, I'm on to the next thing. My mind is already going in this direction, a little different from what you're asking for. But it's but essentially for me, it's about expanding my own personal borders and to include an aspect of advocacy, I suppose, even though I'm fighting back against that in these interviews because that's not what this particular book is about. So I seem to hear you saying it's not just advocacy, it's doing something. Um, and I, I will get back to you on that. I, wouldn't mind. I, I literally am now starting to stare down at the time a little bit because I have promised my daughter a hike to Eldorado Springs. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's it is a promise, and I would love to talk to you again. Okay, so we'll leave it there for now. And if something comes up to you of – to me, I actually feel like you're really close. Like when people sound like you, it's not – it's at some point where someone's like, oh, you mean I can do X? And they're like, oh, I didn't think of that. And it sounds like you're close to that, but it, it can one can never tell. And we did talk for a while before recording, so we're way over our, yeah. our scheduled time. Um, let's – I, I'm trying to think of uh, after we, we finish recording, let's figure out if we're going to do the next conversation recording or not recording. But um, hopefully you'll be back to continue this for the listeners to hear the your um, results or your experience. Yeah. Well, I'll think about it today when I'm, when I'm walking. And, and I'd love to, you know, obviously talk a little more about the book as well and and maybe even throw some ultimate in there. <laughs> I just had two big smiles. <laughs> I smiled and then you settled in there. I smiled again. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap up there. Unless there's, if there's, is there anything you want to close with that maybe I didn't think to ask or, or didn't cover? Well, I guess it, it's a little like your experiment in a way, but it's an experiment in empathy. You know, obviously Native Americans for forever, for as long as they inhabited this earth, um, thought more in terms of generations and children's children's children. That environmental thought was echoed by Teddy Roosevelt standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon uh, saying, leave it as it is uh, for our children's children. Um, And it's become yet another kind of environmental trope or cliche, right? Um, but if we really try to break through the crust of it and think about it, what it means, which is what I try to do in the book, and feel what the world would be like 42 years from now when our children are here and, and we're not, that's really what I'm trying to do in parts of this book is get people to feel um, 
and not necessarily, like I said, not necessarily do and, uh, but just to experience what, what that world could be like and, um, and have empathy. Cause I think one of the things that we're fighting here when we talk about climate is a natural human urge to repress. Uh, we repress fear of death or thinking about death. We repress hard things and we're more inclined to think about, you know, I'm thinking about this podcast and then the hike I'm going to take and the work I've got to get to later. I'm not thinking about the world in 40 years. And so the, the repression is a big part of what we're fighting about. Only 3% of Americans consider climate change the most important issue and 50% say they never talk about it. So, you know, the idea of just like bringing it to awareness is, is part of what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to do it with myself too. I'm trying to, you know, wake up to, to what is happening to the world right now. Well, I have to tack onto that, that for people looking to be, to increase that awareness. Uh, I've read a lot of books on the environment and nature, and I confess that I was looking to yours before I started and like, okay, I've probably read this before and I haven't. And it was, an, it's a new book with fresh perspective at many times challenging, but I couldn't, I had to finish it. So I recommend people, that's a great place to start. And I look forward to talking again. This has been stimulating for me, for sure. David Gessner, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.